Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Zorja. I'm with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities, and I'm joined today by Giselle Donnelly from the American Enterprise Institute. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, today, we have um, as our guest, and we're thrilled about it, Professor Francis Fukuyama with um, Stanford University no uh, need to make any additional introductions. Um, and, We don't have enough time. <laughs> and <laughs> correct. And, uh, and I would love to start off with Moldova. Frank, you've been recently there, met with uh, Maya Sandu, wrote a great piece that we're going to link in the notes for this podcast on Moldova for American purpose. And there's one specific, well, there's many topics that you touch upon kind of a fast and comprehensive haul through, um, through Moldova. But one of them is the issue of energy. And you describe it um, in clear terms um, that highlighting the fact that Moldova has one card over Transnistria, the fact that um, Transnistria is 100% in energy and gas dependent on uh, Moldova, but also that Moldova is 100% dependent on Russia. And as a matter of fact, in a couple of days, there is a significant risk that um, Russia will cut off um, energy um, to Moldova. And so Moldova is already in a very difficult situation with uh, an average price for gas that is double compared to, for instance, Romania next door, one of its main supporters, and uh, in faces um, ever since you left Moldova, basically protests against the very pro-Western government of President Maya Sandu because of these um, energy prices. So can you give us your take of your visit there and how stringent the situation from a political and a security perspective you see it um, now coming back um, coming back from there as protests are amplifying uh, well sure so thanks very much for having me uh, on the podcast the visit to Moldova was really quite fascinating in quite a lot of respects you know the reason we were there we we're teaching a we have a program called the Leadership Academy for Development and we were teaching a bunch of mid-career, up-and-coming uh, Moldovan uh, leaders, including you know several members of parliament and people that were relatively high up in responsible positions in the government uh, that week. It really uh, struck me that they're in this. The government is is really in a terrible position right now. This is the first really decent government they've had. Uh, pretty much throughout their whole national existence. They've been dominated by very corrupt politicians, by oligarchs. Uh, uh, this Russian laundromat uh, scheme was one that was abetted by a lot of justices and courts in Moldova that helped uh, launder you know, huge amounts, I mean, $20 billion uh, in total, and a lot of it was stolen from the Moldovan people. So you finally get a government that is dedicated to uh, anti-corruption and really wants to try to reform the system, but they get elected in the middle of a COVID epidemic when everybody is, you know, 
under that stress. And then the war with Ukraine starts, there are deluge with Ukrainian refugees. And uh, as you said, they're 100% dependent on Russian gas. The, um, you know, the big card, as you mentioned, is the fact that Transnistria is also dependent on them for gas. And so if the Russians, well, just to back up a little bit, they're already suffering because the global price of gas has gone up. It's gone up for everybody everywhere uh, and particularly in Europe. And so they're already having to pay more. On October 1st, the current contract runs out. And so the question is, do the Russians try to squeeze them further by raising the price even further or cutting them off entirely? Uh, and the big card they have to play is that, you know, without them getting gas, Transnistria doesn't get gas either. It's a funny situation of mutual dependence because Moldova itself is also dependent on Transnistria for all of its electricity. And so, you know, essentially they, they survive together or they go down together. Now, the one consideration that I heard that was quite interesting is speculation is that at this point, you know, given how much trouble Russia is in, in Southern and Eastern Ukraine, everybody's been assuming that the Russians are going to want to protect, uh, you know, their garrison and, and Transnistria, you know, come hell or high water, but that may not be true. Uh, and that in order to screw Moldova, you know, for its pro-Western government, they may be willing to, you know, cast uh, Transnistria loose. You know, I, I tend to doubt that given how much rhetorical emphasis they put on eventually joining up with Transnistria and protecting all these Russians. But that is a problem. But I do think that Maya Sandu's government is going to be in a lot of trouble, even if the Russians, re, you know, renew the contract at at market prices, it's still going to be a major problem for her because, you know, everybody is suffering and it's a poor country. And, um, you know, there is a lot of pro-Russian sentiment there still. You know, we've seen uh, uh, protests over the past weekend and I think scheduled for the coming weekend in Chisinau, um, protesting the gas price hikes. But there's also, at least to me, kind of a new element in this, in that many of the issues or many of the protesters seem to be from Gogazia. Do I have that? Uh, am I pronouncing that uh, correctly? Let's say yes. <laughs> Working for the Eastern Front has increased my knowledge of Moldova by uh, uh, you know, exponentially. <laughs> Uh, but Frank, if, if you've got any knowledge or insight on that, is that a new element in Moldovan politics? Clearly, you know, Russian-inspired. And what can you tell us about Ilan Shore, you know, who's sort of this murky figure who is now resident in Israel, but was or remains uh, one of the Russian-backed oligarchs uh, uh, that operates there? There is a pro-Russian party uh, in the parliament that, you know, had been uh, previously in power. And I think that, uh, you know, they, with I'm sure a lot of backing from Russia, have been pushing these protests. Uh, and uh, I, I actually, I was given this very nice picture book of Gagauzia. Uh, okay. And what it, it looks like a really beautiful place, but I do think that there's probably also this, you know, regional component. It's very interesting. A lot of people in Moldova told me that the Russian-speaking population in Transnistria is not like the Russians in the Donbass. Like they, they, they actually don't have the same level of hatred and you know hostility towards the regime in Chisinau that uh, 
you know, some, at least, you know, some of the people in Donbass do. And there's actually, you know, a fair amount of pretty open talk about eventual uh, reabsorption of Transnistria, uh, which obviously is the result of, you know, Ukrainian military successes. And, you know, in the case of Ukraine, which I know a lot better than, than Moldova, you know, I think it's a dicey question whether they actually really want to reabsorb Donbass because, uh, although there, are, you know, a lot of people there that actually think of themselves as Ukrainian, there's also a lot of really hardcore, very pro-Russian, you know, pretty fascist type people. Second prize, uh, second prize is two Donbasses, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Whereas everybody said that that's really not true in Transnistria, that people could imagine a, you know, eventual peaceful unification of the of the two regions which continue to be very economically codependent on one another if the russians you know would permit that and and i guess the russian position so there's some other little interesting details so the russian position is actually quite tenuous there the only way that the russians can resupply their garrison is by air because you know essentially the ukrainians cut off all transborder movement uh uh, into uh, 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 Transnistria, and so it's a you know it's it's hard for them to resupply the uh, the garrison. The other big complication is this big ammo dump they got there. So apparently, this is like the largest ammo dump anywhere in Europe. Uh, it's very uh, risky because a lot of the ammunition is extremely old. Uh, people think it's very unstable and. If there's an accident, if it's set off, uh, you know, it, it could really have a devastating effect on, on the entire region. I mean, it's one of those things that will explode for years, you know, yeah. days on end. Yeah. Dom style. Uh, uh, <laughs> and, and apparently the, the Ukrainians would really like to get their hands on this because, you know, as you're aware, uh, they've been running out of ammunition for their, uh, you know, for their inherited Soviet era uh, equipment. But the Moldovans don't want to let that happen because, you know, they have to pretend that they're neutral in this war because of the dependence on on Russian gas. And so I don't know where all of that, you know, leaves things. Well, I guess we'll have to see over the weekend what the Russians actually do in terms of this, you know, renewing this contract. But I do think, you know, it's probably the case that, uh, you know, just like the the protests in Prague over gas prices were not kind of general protests of everybody. They were really staged by, you know, supporters of this Russian you know, this kind of right wing, yeah, this right wing uh, party. And I'm not sure that it necessarily has such a, you know, such a broad geographic base. You kind of said it outright. I don't know where that leaves us, but this would have, this is sort of preempting the question that I would have had to say wrap up the the dossier of of Moldova that you fantastically um talked us through by the way if I were Moldovan um, I do have ancestors from there I would now be able to bestow you at least symbolically <laughs> even after just a few days um uh, um honorary citizenship in that <laughs> you know your game around there so 
I, I've been worried about Moldova throughout this war. We've all been following the false flag um, operations and now the, um, the protests. And looking at Moldova and how unstable it's been over the last 30 years, the looming scenarios in case the Russians are cutting off, um, decide to cut off gas, which would be sort of a continuation of their policy for looking at the pipelines right now, Nord Stream and everything, or um, if the the price that is being negotiated is just not affordable for Moldovan citizens, the poorest country in um, on the European continent right now. Um, you mentioned that this would not fare well um, or or do well with the government, and so if um, if this would really look at some point in the near future um, like um, a major source of instability that could feed into into the larger war, even if it's not, you know, on the ground operationally. What are the instruments? How can we think about helping them? Is it just the EU that can do something with Romania and, and energy? Um, can Ukraine help in any context? How do you see help coming for Moldova? You know, the the single uh, most important thing they could do is to end this complete dependence on Russian gas uh, and, uh, you know, try to get their gas, you know, flowing from uh, other parts of Europe. But that's, it's difficult for a couple of reasons. I mean, Romania has been very helpful and they're sympathetic to Moldova. They want to help them, but they themselves are facing much higher gas prices. You know, that's a, that's a kind of general global economy problem. It's not unique to, to Moldova. And so there's limits to what they can do. But certainly, you know, Europe has to rethink uh, its whole energy policy and create a, an integrated European market in which gas can flow in any direction, depending on who's under stress. And that includes, you know, having uh, gas flow, uh, you know, from Romania into Moldova, you know, through, I don't know, I guess there's a a pipeline, uh, yeah. uh, you know, coming from Central Asia that's going into that region. And so that's the long-term solution. In the short run, uh, you know, I think that some kind of monetary support to Moldova, you know, to get them through this winter would be very helpful, unlike Germany, which, and, and other rich European countries, which are providing energy subsidies to help their consumers and their businesses survive uh, the cutoff this winter, Moldova just doesn't have the resources to do something like that. And, uh, you know, I asked the prime minister uh, whether uh, candidate status to the EU had actually led to any concrete uh, help from the uh, EU. And she said, basically, no. I mean, it was, you know, a symbolic gesture that they took. It was very nice that they did it, but they haven't really followed up. And I, I, I do think that uh, it's important for them uh, for them to do that. Uh, you know, refugees is another thing I didn't mention, but I guess they had almost half a million Ukrainians come across the border. Most of them have actually now gone on to other European countries, but they're still hosting something like 80, 90,000, which in a country of two and a half million is still a lot of people. Uh, and that's an area where they could also probably use some, I don't know, basic humanitarian relief to help feed and clothe, you know, uh, that population. So I do think there's there are things that, you know, the outside world can do to, you know, to bolster them. 
the main thing is just to get through this winter. Uh, I think that I'm confident enough about the prospects of Ukraine actually pushing back the Russians and defeating them, you know, militarily that, uh, and I think that it can happen, you know, by, you know, by, by next spring. Um, and so we're not talking about a conflict that's going to go on indefinitely. Uh, it's really just everybody politically surviving this next winter. And so that's why I think some short-term economic assistance may be very, uh, may be very helpful there. Before we um, pivot to uh, Ukraine per se, as Julia mentioned earlier, Frank, you've done a lot of work in Ukraine for, for many years. One of the issues that's been sort of uh, raised but also tabled over the past nine months or so is the question of, you know, what a Western strategy should be for the Black Sea and particularly the, the Western Black Sea. You know, we mentioned Romania, Moldova, uh, and Ukraine. I'm wondering if you got any thoughts about over the medium term about how to mm -hmm. better integrate, you know, what has been a no man's land yeah. into the Western world. Well, I should ask you guys about that. You know, uh, there was this Three Seas initiative right. that was launched. Uh, <clears throat> when was it? Sometime last year. Mm -hmm. uh, I was asked by the Ukrainian. Um, uh, embassy to, you know, talk about it. And it struck me at the time that it was a very good idea. You know, it's, it's, um, it's an infrastructural issue because most of the lines of communication run east-west, right. you know, from Poland into Ukraine or Romania into Ukraine and so forth. But there's relatively little infrastructure north-south that links the Baltics all the way down to, you know, to places like uh, Moldova and Romania. And for both strategic and economic reasons, I think that if you could strengthen those uh, lines of communication, you know, strategically, it would be very important. We don't know where the Russians are going to put pressure, you know, on Europe in the future. And you need to be able to move forces, you know, very flexibly to where the problem is. And in terms of economic integration, you know, rail is very important. And uh, I think if you could actually build, um, you know, better ways of moving goods, you know, to other parts of Europe that would help. Uh, so th there's this one issue, I keep coming back to this because I was invited um, back in 2014 uh, to a meeting uh, sponsored by Russian Railways. I had no idea, I was very naive at the time and I didn't understand who was- Who these guys were. Backing all <laughs> yeah. of this. Yeah, but um, there's a big problem in that region with railway gauges because the former Soviet Union uses this 15, 20 millimeter wide gauge railway and the rest of Europe uses a 14, 35 millimeters standard gauge railway and stuff going into from Ukraine into Poland, you know, they, they got to take the cars off of the wheels and put them on a different set of wheels simply to move. And that's one of the things that's been slowing down, you know, for example, the Ukrainians could be exporting a lot more grain by rail uh, since their seaborne transport has been constrained, but it's very difficult to do because of this, you know, rail gauge issue. And so I think that, you know, that's if you want to integrate that entire region, uh, that Black Sea region into Europe more tightly, one thing you can do is try to solve this, you know, this problem of physically, how do you connect uh, these regions so that you can actually have much larger volumes of trade and export, you know, going back and forth. 
So that's another sort of long-term issue that I think all the countries in that region need to do. And I think those countries, you know, uh, in that three C's initiative are exactly the right ones to take the lead and kind of pointing to the need for that north-south integration. Yeah, I think I think this is you're right. This is one of the main issues that we've had in the region. The three C's initiative is definitely focused on that. Interestingly enough, um, the U.S. bought in at the time of the um, um, Pompeo administration, trying to focus it on China. The trouble with it so far has been that Ukraine and Moldova are not part of it because so far it's only been EU countries along the three C's. And so me and others have been advocating for a while to start thinking about integrating that with um, Ukraine, with Moldova and and with Georgia. Um, Moving on to Ukraine, maybe starting with something that you're, I'm sure you're tired of being asked, but is on everybody's minds, particularly in Kyiv. The reports, you know, on a people-to-people level have been now for at least a week in the context of mobilization and the theory of Putin's escalation that everybody in Kyiv is trying to prepare for a nuclear attack. Um, And here in the West, we've been busy warning about that, um, panicking about that, and trying to also make sense of it strategically. So putting that huge topic um, on, on the table, how do you see it? Where do you think things are going and what are the biggest issues in this context that we should be focusing on? I still don't think that it's likely that Putin is going to use nuclear weapons because it just doesn't make sense from his own standpoint. Uh, you know, in terms of reversing the losses on the battlefield, you know, this kind of weapon is not going to be uh, terribly helpful. But Uh, You know, the main problem is that NATO has so many responses that it could undertake. For example, a no-fly zone. You know, I, uh, this is something the Biden administration has been refusing uh, to implement. I haven't been supportive of it up till now because it basically would involve NATO striking directly at Russian targets. Uh, And we didn't, you know, and I didn't think, and the Biden administration didn't think that this was uh, an escalation that that you know we ought it, it was not a risk we should take. But if they set off a nuclear weapon, uh, you know I think we'll come down hard. Uh, we've got lots of conventional options, uh, not just a no-fly zone. You can go after you know the bases from which the Russians are launching these attacks. You can basically clear the Black Sea of their navy, you know, uh, fairly easily. And you know my. Uh, my sense is that uh, a lot of Western capitals have been busy communicating this to Putin through back channels over the past week, you know, just saying, you know, don't think that you're going to get away with this and intimidate everybody if you actually go ahead and use a nuclear weapon. So, uh, you know, let's hope that that's, that's sufficient. I, I would, I guess, simply note that he has, you know, the, the talking heads on Russian TV have been hugely irresponsible in talking about nuking, you know, Paris and Berlin and so forth. But, All the time, yeah. But the government... They are particularly inspired when they try to attack Great Britain. Yeah. <laughs> However, uh, you know, Putin's actually been fairly cautious up till now. I mean, even in terms of attacking Ukrainian infrastructure, he hasn't tried to 
go after the supply lines uh, that are bringing Western equipment in from, you know, from Poland. I mean, there's stuff that he could have been doing uh, up till now that he's kind of refrained from. And so it makes me think that he's actually, you know, and, and he delayed this mobilization until now, which, mm. you know, has really, I think, cost him a lot. So although Putin has been a an unpredictable risk taker in the past, uh, I still think that this is such a big gap. I think somebody, I forget who it was, made the comment um, that if, if you're Putin, the one thing that you could do that would almost guarantee that you're not going to survive as president of Russia is escalating as to nuclear weapons, because that's going to have such big international consequences. And consequences within Russia, where you're going to scare to death, you know, much of your population. Uh, and so I, I would think that, you know, in terms of his own survival, he, he's not likely to do this. You know, you know, this is almost like a continuation. So there was obviously a misperception, shall we say, within the expert, the Russia watcher community about the power of the Russian army prior to the war. And it seems like this is of a similar character when it comes to estimating the political leadership and Putin in particular. It's like there's this 1943 disease that or cloud mm -hmm. that overhangs everything. And, you know, so we, we don't, we look at Putin and either we see like a James Bond villain or Stalin hiding behind the curtain or something like mm -hmm. that. We don't see him very clearly just the way we didn't see the Russian army. I mean, um, yeah, yeah, the myths are, are so much more powerful than than the data. Yeah, in fact, uh, it's to the extent that I worry a little bit down the road, having uh, <laughs> overestimated him. You know, the next time Russia poses a big threat, you know, in another decade or generation or whatever, we're going to be complacent because we're going to say, "Yeah, God, look at how much we overestimated them." I, so I think that it's it's a these are problems that could be corrected by a future Russian regime, but you're absolutely right that we really didn't understand just how bad their situation was. And, you know, I have a friend that still insists that Putin is a strategic genius, but it's, you know, pretty hard. Is his to... first name Darth? Yeah. <laughs> Frank, to, to wrap it up and to, to let you go, but uh, as I suggested, as we were preparing to, to talk, I mean, you spent a lot of time um, thinking about and also familiarizing yourself with the technology of drones, unmanned aircraft, and mm -hmm. uh, other other forms of these things. And so I'd be interested in just to, again, I'm just going to ask the question in as vague a way as, as possible. Um, the, the, again, there's another case where, where the data of the war can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. Um, but so I'd just like to open the door to you to talk about your impressions of the use of uh, unmanned yeah, aircraft sure. and similar weaponry during this war. Well, so I got into building and flying drones uh, when I first moved to California in 2010. And, uh, you know, I had a, a bunch of drones that... Um, you know, I could pilot. And then I decided I didn't like it because they were big. And if they hit somebody, you'd really do a lot of damage and you worried about losing them and so forth. So I gave it up for about 10 years. But just in the past year, 
I came back to the hobby and I was just astonished at how much it had changed. So, you know, now you can get a drone that's just, you know, six inches across that has two video cameras and you can, you know, transmit a signal from miles away back into a pair of goggles so you can see what the drone is seeing. And, you know, the Ukrainians have been doing these amazing things with these commercial drones. Uh, you know, I, I think the single most important function uh, they're performing is actually target spotting because, you know, like a high Mars, it can't hit anything if it doesn't know where the target is, right? right? And how are you going to know where the target is if it's 30 kilometers behind the front line? You could have a spotter on the ground, but I think actually, you know, it's all drones that are kind of getting the GPS coordinates where, you know, where should the, where should the rocket land? And, and it, so in that sense, they've been very critical. And we've seen this back and forth, you know, the Iranians have now given or sold the, the Russians, the Shahed drones that are now being used to attack Odessa and so forth. And there's been this constant push and pull of um, like the, the Bayraktar, the TB2s, the Turkish drones were very important early in the war. And then I think the Russians figured out how to shoot them down. And so the Ukrainians actually lost quite a few of them, but now they, they've adapted. And so now they're They've come back. They've come know, back and, to and yeah. you're seeing more and more video footage of them being used in, you know, in Kharkiv and so forth. But the the overall point is that the technology is actually not that sophisticated. Like, if I can fly one of these drones, you know, anyone can do it. Uh, I always thought that the way we would see this is less in military operations, but in things like targeted assassinations. Uh, because it would be really easy to kill somebody you don't like, you know, just by flying a suicide drone. To... Yeah, there was the attack on the Iraqi yeah. prime minister not too long ago. Yeah. yeah, and they've used them in Afghanistan and, you know, all sorts of places. Uh, and so I just think that this is part of a broader democratization of warfare that's been going on uh, where, you know, military capabilities have been technologically assisted in moving down the food chain. Uh, and so it really has shifted the balance. I mean, the most remarkable case is Turkey. So they have intervened in Libya, in Syria, in Nagorno-Karabakh, and now they've played this major role in the Ukraine war. So it's a middle range power, but they've got very sophisticated drones. In fact, they've used them in Ethiopia. I mean, there's any number of conflicts in that region where uh, Turkish drones have actually made a really big uh, difference to military outcomes. And I just think that's an example of how the great powers increasingly really don't control a lot of the technologies and therefore a lot of the outcomes of these conflicts in a way that they, you know, they once did. I know we have to wrap it up um, here, unfortunately, because we're running out of time. Um, but my main takeaway sort of from from the last comments you made um, was on, and I've read you on this before, but I think it's food for thought on technology drones and beyond on many other things looking at this war. And I think the key words here are democratization of warfare and of this war in so many ways from the Ukrainian side too. And in a 
almost ironical way now um, from the Russian side too um, with what is going on with mobilization. So we'll leave it at that in the hope that you'll be joining us um, soon again to to take up from where we left off. Okay. Thank you so much for, for joining us. So from me, Yulia Zoja, and my friend, Giselle Donnelly, thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. The Eastern Front's newsletter is now live. You can sign up for a newsletter through the link included in the show notes to receive a bi-weekly update of newly released episodes, exclusives Q&A with our um, hosts, and to stay up to date with the most recent op-eds and articles from us on security challenges facing the Eastern Front. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.